So early on a Sunday morning, took with them to complete the burial preparation to finish the process of they weren't going to see a risen savior they were going to pour aromatic oils on a dead body now it didn't would require an extremely large amount of faith. And there's some of us might say, well, trouble. expecting to find Jesus' dead body as opposed to a resurrected Christ. And the tomb that Jesus was buried in was most likely a carved out cave into solid rock. It wasn't like we look at today where people are buried in the ground. If, if you see the mountains, you see that somebody would go in and they would actually hew out out of solid stone a cave and then there would be a, a large stone placed in front of it to block it. This particular tomb belonged to a man named Joseph from an area called Arimathea. And the cave, as we said, was sealed off with a large round stone that was rolled across the opening. This was to keep out thieves. Sometime before the women came to the tomb, Matthew records that an earthquake took place and an angel rolled away the stone from the entrance to the tomb. Matthew is the only writer in the Gospels that records two earthquakes. The first one was after Jesus' death on the cross. And that's the earthquake that when, when it happened, it says that the, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And it says that the graves, people came out of the graves in the, the cemeteries around Jerusalem. That was the first, first earthquake that Matthew recorded. The second one is when the angel rolled away the stone at the tomb. Now, I'm not saying that an earthquake was needed to roll away the stone. Because Jesus, in his glorified body, at one point later on, actually walked through a, appeared in a room that the door was closed and locked. So he could have just walked through the stone. The stone was rolled away, not for Jesus to get out, but for the followers to be able to look in. Let's go back to verse 2 
I want to read through verse 10. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, the appearance of the angel was so awe-inspiring that the Roman soldiers were terrified. Now, I want to put this in perspective. According to the Greek historian, Polybius, a Roman guard unit usually consisted of four men. One soldier stood guard, while the other three assumed a more relaxed position nearby. They weren't asleep. They were just a little bit more relaxed, and they remained ready to spring into action if they were needed. The guard detail at Jesus' tomb was told to stay there for three days, starting on Friday, to assure that Jesus' disciples didn't come and steal the body. They weren't trying to stop Jesus from getting out because they didn't believe he was going to raise from the dead. They were trying to keep people from getting in and starting this whole rumor that he had risen from the dead and that he really was who he said he was. Now, here's another thing. These weren't just any soldiers. These were Roman soldiers from the mightiest army that the world had ever known. These were the soldiers that had conquered the rest of the known world. These guys were tough. They certainly weren't people. They weren't soldiers that the disciples could come up and take out and roll the stone away. Remember the disaster in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter? He goes to chop the guy's head off and he cuts his ear off. So they really weren't equipped to fight these Roman soldiers. And certainly the women didn't overpower them. So we see that these guys were doing their job. Here they are, stationed at a tomb, four soldiers guarding the tomb. Nobody's getting in. Now, Polybius went on to say that the soldiers of that day, these Roman soldiers, they, they exercised every day. And they, they exercised so much. And be, the reason was that they didn't want the fatigue to set in when they were in battle. Because they were training, daily training, so that they wouldn't get tired. So here's these four manly super soldiers. Sure. He also said, this is Polybius, this is a quote. Neither can any disorder remove them from their usual regularity, nor can fear affright them out of it, nor can labor tire them. 
This is the quote from a Greek historian. These guys were good. But let's look what happened when the angel appeared. Verse 4 says that they shook and became like dead men. What does that mean? They fainted. So here's these four tough guys laying on the ground, passed out from fear. And these women walk up, and an angel appears to them, and he says, don't be alarmed. You're here to look for Jesus. You're here to see Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, he's not here. He's gone, just like he said it would be. And he invited them to look inside the tomb, which they could do now because the stone was rolled away. And so they looked in there, and sure enough, he was gone. And he told them to go tell the disciples that Jesus had risen and that he'll meet you in Galilee. And it was there that they would all see him, just as he had told them. And I'm sure they were frightened. Look at this, look what happened to the soldiers. They passed out when they saw the angel. And here's these women that have walked up expecting to find their friend Jesus dead. And instead, here's this angel that the Bible says had the appearance of lightning. That's pretty cool. And so they come and they're frightened and they're also surprised. Why is it that when we pray for something so often, when it actually happens, we're so shocked? Why? Because we're humans. And it's hard for us often to believe things we cannot see. And that's where faith comes in. According to Hebrews 1 and 11, or 11 and 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And in a normal human mind, that just doesn't make sense. Because how can you be certain of something you don't see? It's faith. In other words, sometimes we just have to believe it because the Bible says it, and we base what we believe on the Bible as opposed to the circumstances. And these women were probably very scared. But even though they were scared, they hurried away to tell the disciples the good news. And their message was very simple. He is risen. And as they hurry off through the the area that they're in, Jesus appears in front of them and speaks to them and they recognize His voice and they fell down and worshipped Him. And Jesus repeats what the angel said. Go tell the disciples that I've risen and I will meet with all of you in Galilee. And it was fitting they should meet in Galilee. That's where Jesus' ministry started. That was kind of the home base of Jesus and His disciples. So we see that here's these women gone off to tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. It's great. But there was also another group of people that had to report what happened. And that was the soldiers. This was not good. In a Roman army, according to history, there were tremendous incentives to carry out your assigned duty. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of what time it is, you are required to carry out your duty. In fact, the same historian, Polybius, said, this is a quote, Fear of punishment resulted in meticulous performance of duty, especially on night watches. 
If something won't keep you awake, fear of being punished just might work. The emperor Justinian recorded several offenses that soldiers, that soldiers could commit that carried with it a death penalty. And all of them weren't really bad things like treason and desertion and murder. The death penalty for Roman soldiers also applied to offenses such as deserting your post and deserting your post at night was especially one that was punished by death. And one way that guards were put to death or soldiers were put to death with the death penalty is they would strip them of all their clothes and then they would set them on fire with the clothes that they took off of them and they would burn them to death. If there was a four-man group like there was here, they would cast lots to see which one of them died because they failed at their mission. So do you think they were a little bit afraid? And I would say because of the threat of those things, it's not very likely they fell asleep, as some theologians would like for us to believe. Matthew twenty-eight, eleven through 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. Notice they didn't go to their, their, their leader in the army. They went to the chief priest that had orchestrated this whole mess here. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Think about that now. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble by telling more lies. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So we see four soldiers from the mightiest army of the world that were in fear of being put to death if they deserted their post or fell asleep while they were standing guard duty. And with all the training and all the incentives to do the job correctly, because of powerful events that took place at the tomb, they were unable to speak and they were unable to move, much less fight. But eventually they gained their composure and they take off to Jerusalem to the chief priest and say, hey, something happened back there. And while the women are going to tell the good news, they're going to tell the chief priest the bad news. This was the solution for the chief priest. We're going to give you a bunch of money and you're going to lie and say that you fell asleep and the disciples came and got him. Now, I'm sure those guards are thinking, I'm going to tell them I fell asleep. That's punishable by death. I don't know if I want to do that. But somehow these chief priests convinced them to do something that was punishable by death. Interesting note here. The chief priest didn't mind asking someone to do something that they weren't willing to do themselves. They weren't willing to die over this thing. But they were willing to get somebody else to do it. And sadly enough, today we have so-called religious leaders that 
do the same thing. They ask people to do things that they're, they're just not willing to do. But I will tell you this. At High Point Church, if one of our pastors ever asks you to do something, to give of your time, give of your, your finances, to give of, of resources, or anything that they ask of you, they will always be the first ones to contribute themselves. They will not ask you to do something that they're not willing to do themselves. That's the sign of a good leader. Obviously, these chief priests weren't exactly good leaders. I have a, a difficult time buying into a ministry where the person that is supposed to be the shepherd or the leader will ask his flock to give toward a special need. And they'll get up and make this special plea and they'll have banners and, and movies and everything else that this is, this is our new special need. And I want you to all go out in debt and take out second mortgages on your house and sell your kids and bring all that money in and we've got this special need. And then they go back home to one of their multi-million dollar mansions and their fleet of luxury cars. That won't happen here at High Point Church, I assure you. But that's another sermon. Back to today. But that's what the religious leaders of that day did. Except one difference here. The soldiers really didn't have a choice. They were between a serious rock and a hard place. If they told the truth, their superiors wouldn't believe them anyway. I can see it. They walk up to their superior and go, uh, Colonel, we didn't fall asleep. The guy rose from the dead, and then this angel that looked like lightning came down, and he was like glowing and shining, and next thing we knew, we were waking up on the ground. And Jesus, he rose from the dead and walked away. You think they'd have bought into that? I think the falling asleep thing probably was the better one. And they're... they're, colonel or captain would say let me get this straight an angel lightning raised from the dead so instead the roman guards took the money and they said they fell asleep and remarkably the scripture goes on to say that the people of that day didn't have any trouble believing that they didn't have trouble believing that four of the the highly trained roman soldiers that were in fear of death for falling asleep while they're on watch, all fell asleep at the same time. Why? Because they just didn't want to believe. And there are people today that won't believe in the resurrection. You know why? They just don't want to believe. It's easier just not to believe. It's easier to say, well, since I didn't see it happen, it just didn't happen. That's where faith comes in. But you have to remember, if that did not happen, then we have no basis at all for our entire belief system that we have as Christians. Going back to the different theories, to show you how crazy these... Let's, let's go to the swoon theory. That Jesus actually just passed out on the cross and that He came to consciousness back in the tomb and rolled the stone away. Here's a man that was beaten within that much of his life 
and then was nailed to a wooden cross and hung there for however long, several hours. And yet he had enough strength to move this gigantic boulder from in front of this tomb. I don't think so. Well, they just don't think he ever died. He was just unconscious. Or the other way around was that these little wimpy that are off hiding somewhere disciples come up and they beat up the guards and they roll away the stone and they steal Jesus' body. I don't think that happened either. So if anybody presents you with one of these theories, you can say, I just don't think that happened. It just doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And if we can explain it through human means, that means that there was nothing spectacular about Jesus' death and our salvation is useless. In fact, we're going to read a scripture here in a little bit where Paul almost said that word for word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, For what I received I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Go back to that first, that third verse again. I pass this on to you as first importance. In other words, He was saying, I'm going to tell you something, and this is the most important thing that I'm going to tell you. All other things aside, if you forget everything else I said... Here's something that you can hold on to. Jesus Christ died for our sins just like He said He would. And He rose from the dead just like He said He would. He goes on in, the, in verses 5 and 6. And that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and this is a great part. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep or died. He was saying that it wasn't just these women, it wasn't just the disciples, He appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And if you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. Go ask Him yourself. That's what He said. It's no secret. You don't have to believe the women. See, the testimony of a woman in court in that day meant absolutely nothing. So the fact that they said something, because of the culture of that day, it was meaningless. So Paul goes on to say, he also appeared to the twelve disciples. And if you don't buy into that, because they were followers, how about the other 500 people at the same time? And most of them are still alive, so go ask him yourself. And while it is true 
that those that we are talking about today in, in the Scriptures we've read, those that Paul wrote about, they actually saw Jesus after His resurrection and they gave testimony that they physically saw Jesus after He rose from the dead. And though all of that happened, I believe that the most telling testimony of all is the life that those early Christians lived after that. Stay with me for a minute. For somebody just to say something doesn't take a lot. They could walk up and say, hey, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. I saw him after he rose from the dead. I saw him when he was dead, and I saw him a few days later. But here's what really matters. If it wasn't true, what would cause them to go everywhere telling the message of a risen Christ? Were there any visible benefits for them to go do that? Was there any prestige, any wealth, increased social status or material benefits for going and proclaiming that this Jesus had risen from the dead? If it wasn't true, why would his followers lie about it? Most people lie for profit, to make their reputation seem a little bit better than it is, to gain political power, boy, we see that, or for some other advantage to them. In short, men lie to save their own skin. But men do not lie so that they can be tortured and killed. I'm going to lie to you until you torture me. Uh, no, that's not the way it works. But look at what happened. Many of the people of that day, including most of the disciples, died proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and that He had risen from the dead. And they went to their death saying the same thing. Why would somebody do that if it wasn't true? Okay, okay, I just made it up. If it wasn't true, that's what they'd say. And if the, the resurrection story is a fraud, then all 12 of the disciples were co-conspirators. But let me tell you this. Not one disciple renounced the truth of the resurrection in the face of certain death. Of all the ones that were tortured and killed, not one of them renounced what they had initially said, that Jesus rose from the dead and I saw Him myself. But they were rewarded for their efforts. They were beaten, stoned to death, thrown to lions, tortured, and crucified themselves. That was their reward for telling the truth. There was every conceivable method used to stop them from talking about the resurrection. But you know what? They didn't stop. They laid down their life and that was the ultimate proof of their complete confidence in the truth of their message. You don't really believe that. Yeah, I do. How much do you believe it? I'll die believing it. I'll die before I'll say it didn't happen because I saw it with my own eyes. Chuck Colson, the, the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministry, said this, People will die something they believe to be true. We are witnessing that daily. But they will not die for something they know to be false. I believe the only logical account for these people's actions 
is their wholehearted and total allegiance to a risen Christ and not to a dead one. Those that had followed him so closely for three and a half years of his ministry, if he died and didn't raise from the dead like he told them, they just walk off. Another false one. They come along every few years and we believe it. He's just another one. But that didn't happen. And we too are called to be witnesses of the resurrection. And some people would ask, well, how can I be a witness to the resurrection of Christ? I wasn't there. We are all witnesses to the resurrection of Christ through the changes that the Spirit brings to our lives. John Newton was a former slave trader. And after his conversion, he wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And the line in that song says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That was his transformation. That's his witness to the resurrection. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I'm a changed person. The fact that our lives have been changed is a witness. The fact that the things that we used to care about, we don't care about. And the things that we care about now are the things we used to not care about. And the fact that the things that we used to do, well, we just don't do them anymore. And the fact that we have received the Holy Spirit into our lives and it has given us power that has transformed us and made us a new man. That should be our witness. No, I can't tell you that I saw Jesus after He rose from the dead. But I can tell you what I have seen. In Acts 1 and 8, we use this Scripture an awful lot, but you will receive power when the... Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I believe Brandon, Florida is the ends of the earth. It says, when you will be. When you receive the Spirit, you will be my witnesses. And I'm not smart enough to think of it any other way except that if you have received the Spirit, you will be a witness. What will I witness about? I don't know what to witness about. I believe that we need to witness about the exact same thing that those in our Scripture text witnessed about. What you have seen. You've seen lives changed. You've seen people healed. You've seen families put back together. Better yet, you've seen what Christ did in your life. This is what happened to me. And I'm a personal witness of it. That's our witness today. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we can be a witness of what has happened in our life. What's the best witness that you can have if you're going to court? An eyewitness. Someone that actually saw what happened. Your Honor, I didn't run that red light. And here's a hundred other people that were standing there. And they said I didn't run the red light. You got a lot better chance than if you said, I got several people that I told I didn't run the red light and they're here to vouch for that. Okay. A witness, an eyewitness. 
Those people at the beginning of this, this whole thing that we're talking about today, they saw it with their own eyes, and that's why they believed it so strongly. What have you seen with your own eyes that you can believe that strongly that He actually rose from the dead? Well, I heard about this one person. No. What have you seen? What has taken place in your life? What is the transformation that has happened since you were saved? And you don't have to memorize the whole Bible to witness. There's people who go, well, I just don't know the Bible well enough to go witness to people. Here's what you need to witness. You have to know that there's been a change in your life. And you go and share that change with someone else that doesn't know about the good news and possibly is looking for something to change their life. That's what the witness is. Well, what if they don't want to hear it? That's okay. Do you think that everyone that the disciples and those women that witnessed Jesus' resurrection, do you think everyone they went to and said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that guy that said he was going to rise from the dead, he rose from the dead. A lot of people went, so? Yeah, right. I don't want to hear that. I don't care. And you know what? People will probably do the same thing to you from time to time. You start witnessing about what God did in your life and they'll go, I don't want to hear it. You know what? It's okay. But there were enough people that believed it back then that it started something over 2,000 years ago that over a period of time has spread to tens of millions of people and is still growing stronger than ever today. Where did it come from? Witness. But I got saved when I was really young, so God really didn't save me for anything. Let me just correct you on one thing. Because of Adam, we were all born into sin, so you were born a cute little sinner. And even if you never lived a horribly sinful life, you still have something to be saved from, and that's that you were born into sin. And better yet, that since you were saved at that at the young age and you are still living for Christ, that's even a better witness that He was able to keep you through all those things and you never had to experience it. Mike Bingham told me one time, he grew up in church and his dad was a minister. He went into the ministry and he said he got to feeling bad about that, you know, he really didn't have this this story to tell that, you know, I, I was out in the world and I, I did all these bad things and and was at the end of the line and Jesus saved me and brought me back. When he realized the better testimony was that I never went out. God protected me and saved me so that I didn't have to experience. That's even a greater testimony. And it doesn't take away from the testimony of those that that happened to. But what can you witness about? The resurrection might mean something a little bit different to each one of us. But here's the one thing that remains common. It means something to all of us. 
Maybe you were saved from one thing and this person is saved from another thing and this person is saved from another thing. But we all have one thing in common is that we were saved from something. We were all headed to an eternity of punishment. And with that in mind, why wouldn't we want to share it? Well, how bad is it if I don't want to share the gospel? 1 Corinthians 9 and 16. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I am compelled. Because, because I'm a witness of this risen Christ, I am compelled to go share this gospel with everyone I meet. And woe to me if I don't. And I'll ask you today, are you compelled to share the gospel? Absolutely. Romans 10 and verse 14. How then... Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And some people say, well, then that takes me off the hook because I'm not a preacher. Brother Magine, it's all up to you. It's not what it meant. Paul just happened to be a preacher and he was speaking of himself. But it doesn't take the burden off each of us. Insert yourself in that scripture. And let's look at that last line. How can they hear without me telling them? We are all called to be witnesses. You might be called to be something else, but we're all called to be witnesses. Remember Acts 1 and 8? It said, when you have received the power, you will be my witnesses. Nobody's exempt. Yeah, but I got this card that says I don't have to be. No, no exemptions. If you have the Spirit, you will be a witness of Christ. Verse 17, Romans chapter 10. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So if people don't hear the Word, how are they going to be saved? If we don't go out and tell people, how are they going to be saved? Um, Pastor Magine is going to preach to them. And I will say this, when he's preaching, he can get pretty loud, but I bet they won't hear him very far outside. (laughs) The only way they're going to hear it in your neighborhood is if you tell them. Mark 16 and 15. This is Jesus they're speaking of. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Again, you can take preach out of there and just put tell. Because we're all called. So go into all the world and tell the good news to all creation. And it didn't have a preface saying, Brother Magine. Pastor Magine, go into all the world and preach the good news. No, it was speaking to all of us. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light do, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to the entire house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good do, deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's speaking to all of us. And what is the key to that whole thing? Witnessing. Letting people see our light. Nobody lights a lamp and then puts a bucket over it. What good is salt if it's not salty anymore? What good is a Christian if they're not witnessing anymore? If we've lost our saltiness, and we've lost our witness, that scripture we read says it's only good to be thrown out and trampled by men. It's just useless. And I believe that believers... Hold on. Believers in churches today that are not witnesses are just as useless as salt that has lost its saltiness. That's pretty harsh. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And because of all the churches that Paul started and, and pastored and oversaw, Sometimes we tend to think of him as being this um, super witness. And he was. Because once he was converted, on that road that he saw a light and it struck him and he was blinded, and he said, who are you? I am Jesus that you crucified. Ooh. After that conversion, he devoted his entire life to witnessing the gospel. Let's look what Paul said of his witnessing. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 7. After all, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. We can't save anyone. But we do have a responsibility. And our responsibility as Christians that have received the Spirit of God, according to Acts 1 and 8, our responsibility is to humbly, humbly clearly, and lovingly show Christ to the world. And then we leave the results of the witness in the hands of the one that we are witnesses of and of whom we have borne testimony. We are called to plant. We are called to water. God has promised that he'll bring forth the increase. But there's too many people in churches today that don't plant a garden and then they walk out there and wonder why they can't go pick corn. Well, it's that time of year. I see corn in other people's backyard. 
Did you plant any? Well, no. Those that saw Jesus after His resurrection couldn't make people believe that it actually happened. But the one thing they could do was tell of their experience. Rufus H. McDaniel and Charles H. Gabriel penned a song many years ago. It says, What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. And the chorus says, Since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy o'er my soul like a sea billow roll. Since Jesus came into my heart. What's the whole premise of that song? Pretty much the same as, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. And if you're here today and you haven't witnessed that life-changing experience of the crucified and resurrected Christ, and that experience coming into your life, there is not a better time than today. At this season, when we are celebrating the resurrection of Christ, the very Son of God that gave His life in our place to pay for our sins. What better time than when the Spirit of God is in this place and drawing us to Him? What better time than when you see, maybe for the first time, how much Christ loved you? And there is no better place than right here at High Point Church of Brandon, and there is no better time than right now. If you have experienced this life-changing work of the Holy Spirit in your life, let me ask you this. As you go from this place today, as you reflect on the account of those that witnessed the resurrection, as you remember the excitement and the fervor that those early believers went out and shared it with, i got to tell you, i got to tell you this. Shut up or I'm going to kill you. I can't. Don't tell it anymore or we're going to put you in prison. Then just put me in prison because I have to tell it. This man that I traveled with for for three years of my life, he was killed. I saw him die. I, I helped him put him in the tomb. And I saw him. He's alive. I can't stop telling about him because I'm excited. I can't stop telling about him because I know it's real. As we reflect back on their excitement and the fervor with which they witnessed, could it cause us to get a renewed sense of excitement? A renewed fervor for which we leave this place determined not to be the same. And today as we give give thanks and praise for that ultimate sacrifice that was paid for our sins. And I know you can't save anybody. 
But would you purpose in your heart that since I have received and I have experienced the resurrection, that power that came through the resurrection, I've experienced that in my life, because of that, I will be a witness of the resurrection myself. God bless you.